Amen. Praise God. You know, there's so much I want to talk to you about today. I, I, I really, this is really a, just a, a great, I love being um, in this um, setting. You know, this is, this is what we did for 14 years, and um, we're just so thankful for being here with you today. I don't know if, uh, did uh, justice in them? They're, they're already done, those guys already, so you guys have been rolling in here. Justice and them are already done. Amen. I thought they might dial in, dial in with us this morning. Turn your, your Bibles to the book of Esther. I was reading that last night. Now, I'm all messed up now because I read in that little, uh, what do you call it, that iPad last night and you know, I was reading through that thing in the dark, and you can turn on the dark thing so that it'll uh, it'll let you <laughs> it'll let you um, read in the dark there. That's what I thought. Nehemiah, Esther. Now my Bible's falling apart here. Oh, come on, where are you? Where are you? Come on, Nehemiah, Ezra, Nehemiah. There we go. I read through Esther and Job last night. I want to talk to this morning about your resolve for God. Really, everything we do in God's kingdom is is an aspect of faith, you know. And uh, and this morning, as I wanted to talk to you, when uh, Pastor Joe told us yesterday we'd be speaking to you, I was going to really come out of Habakkuk. That's a message I preach out of the book of Habakkuk that shows the journey of faith. But I was, I was reading through Esther. Really, we find the same thing <clears throat> in Esther. And um, so Esther finds, and you guys know the story, but I'm going to pick this up in Esther chapter 4. So they had already received the port, report that the king had passed the law, the decree that uh, through Haman, Haman who had plotted evil against the children of Israel that were in uh, Babylon there, that they, would, that they would be attacked on a certain day, that they would be thwarted and blotted out. Haman had it out for the people of God. And so he had got in good with the king, and he went to him and had the king uh, pass a decree. And as you know the story, Esther was chosen because of king Vash- Queen Vashti, didn't come out, and uh, there's a little lesson in there, man. Even back in the day, man, you know, the women had to be, you know, uh, in the right, um, you know, uh, role there, and, and they recognized that even way back in that time. And, and, and so they choose Queen Esther, and Queen Esther, he doesn't know that she's, she's a Jew. And so Haman passes, gets this law passed with the king, and um, so it's on the certain day they're going to come out, and in and, and, and the, all the provinces, the decrees pass, that the people in the area where the Jews are, they're going to go out and they're going to kill them. So, I mean, it's just a doomsday, you know, uh, report. And so Mordecai, uh, Esther's uncle, he hears the report and he gets word. Now she's the queen. He gets word to her. And um, let's pick it up in chapter 4. <clears throat> it says, When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes. He heard the report. He went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. 
But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put, to put on instead of sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and all the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has put but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, and I want you to really pay attention to this, he sent back this answer. Do not think, because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. I'm going to read that again because it's so powerful. Verse 12, he says, when, uh, in verse 13, he sent back this answer, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your family's father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. I want to talk about being resolved to do what God's called you to do. You, this is something, and, and I'm just going to talk. This is not really, I, last, I read this last night, and so I haven't really had time to put something together. So there's going to be no three points in a poem, this kind of thing. But I just want to talk to you out of my heart this morning. Because I, I, I tell you, out of 27 years of ministry plus, I'm going to tell you that this type of situation right here has come in my life. I mean, just all the time. And every time that God has spoken to us to move forward, there's always been opposition. And, and there's, there's no difference with you. 
You may think that, you know, I don't know, sometimes we get to thinking about ministry and we get these huge ideas of what it's going to be like, you know. You know, wow, look what God did with Pastor Joe. I mean, and sometimes maybe you're coming in, I don't know, maybe you're coming in just right now into this ministry and see what God's doing and think to yourself, wow, I can have something similarly, you know. Wow, in five years, you know, look what's happened, you know. But what you don't, what you don't understand and what you need to understand is that there has been a price that has been paid to arrive to this point. Now, you have not had to pay it. Now, even those that have you that have been even from the beginning, you know, you have paid a certain price to be with the visionary. But the fact of the matter is, when you stand in that place of being the leader or the visionary, you're going to throw down your life for the sake of what God's asking you to do. You're going to have to adopt. There's going to come a point in your life, if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. And in, in the call of God, that has to be resolute in your life. We don't, we don't hear about this anymore, laying down your life for the cause of Jesus Christ. Now, I know you hear that in this church. I know you do, because Pastor Joe knows all about that. I remember one night, uh, Pastor Joe calling me, and I don't know if he remembers this. He called me, and he says, Brother, you know, I was here talking to some gang members, and, and he was, I think he was in Mid-City. He was not far from his church. Brother, you probably don't remember that I remember that phone call. And you said, right then, as he is preaching to these guys, another gang showed up. Have I got the story right? And behind him, the gang that he was talking to pulled out the gun and pow, pow, pow. Right? Now, I remember being on the streets of New Orleans when we were planning, planning that uh, school and going into the Mary Poppins project. Now, listen, I know maybe you're not in the projects anymore. This doesn't look like the projects. But it's still the same thing. Whatever God asks you to do, you have to be willing to do it at the cost of your life. Now, I know, like, okay, well, man, that's pretty radical. I'm not going to the inner city. But it's still the same. It's a laying down of your will. It's a laying down of your life. Remember what Jesus, you know, Jesus... <laughs> With the disciples. You know, what, what was the call of them? You know, he says, when the people, when he started saying things, you know, that were radical, too radical so that most of the crowd left. And then he turns to his disciples and says, will you leave me also? Will you leave me also? And they looked around and he says, where are we going to go? We've left our family. We've left our jobs. See, the call to ministry is not a bivocational call. You may have to operate bivocationally for a while, and that's okay. But it's not. While you're doing whatever medical transcriptionists are doing whatever to, to make the ends meet, the fact of the matter is you cannot lose from your heart, from your mind, that God has called you to ministry, and that is your primary calling. It's your primary goal. It must be the all in all in your life. If you're going to make it in ministry, Ministry because 80% of those that go into ministry after five years leave. 80%. That's a real statistic. And I, I had some statistics in here, and it was talking about like 1,300 ministers like a month or something leave the ministry. Leave the ministry. 
you see, you wherever you're going to go, you're going to whatever God calls you to. It, you know, it may be as this church begins to plant other churches, and you guys are sent out as metro praises of different parts of the city because there's a there's a call for how many churches, Pastor? Fifty churches. I mean, as God sends you out or whatever God sends you out to do, the fact of the matter is when you get there, you're going to have to know that the enemy is not going to like what you're doing. And he sent, and the enemy comes walking in in two shoes. And, he, and they, will, they will try and thwart the plan of God in your life. They will try and discourage the plan of God in your life. God had a plan for his people. His people were in captivity at this point, but God still had a plan for them. And now here come this edict to wipe them all out. And Mordecai, being a man of faith, when he heard that the queen, I, and I just I read through this story, here's this man of faith. You know, this story is about Esther. But really, more than that, it's about Mordecai. Because Mordecai has raised Esther up to be the woman that she needs to be for God. God had used Mordecai when her mother and father had died, but God raised this man up, and when the opportunity came, he's the one that brought Esther to the place to be chosen as a queen. He's the one that kept, you see, Mordecai moving in, in Esther's life. But when it comes time, and he's the one, if you read the story, he learns about a plot against the king. And I, and I love it because, you know, God is, God is, you know, in, at work, if we will just trust Him, if we will we build, if we will be willing to lay down our life, if we just trust Him, God's going to work out this situation because He finds out about this plot to kill the queen, uh, the king, and so. Excuse me. And so He sends word to Esther. Esther tells the the king, the king, you know. Uh, hangs these guys, you know, and uh, kills them. And so the plot is thwarted. They write it down in the book, and everybody forgets about it, you know. And I think I told you yesterday, one of the last things that I told you about characteristics of leadership is favor. When you will do what God's asked you to do, God will do what you cannot do. God will do it. He will do it. When you entrust your life in the hands of God, if he has a plan and a purpose for your life, he is going to accomplish that thing. And so here's Esther. She had come to the, to, into the kingdom for such a time as this. And I mean, and that's what Mordecai's words, hey, listen, and, and I love it because there's faith here. He says, let me tell you something. You're in the office and, and you're, you're at this position. Don't think that you're going to be absolved from this edict. Because if you don't do anything, God is going to raise someone else up to do it. That's what he says right here. He says, if, uh, he says, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. That's faith, man. He knew that God had a purpose and a plan for the Jews. And he knew, hey, man, you've been raised up for such a time as this. But if you remain silent, believe me, God's kingdom, his church, is still going to be built. But you're not going to be a part of it. And see, sometimes we will subjugate ourselves to the fear of men and to the fear of denominations or the fear of all kinds of things. And we don't see that if we will keep uh, our faith, if we'll keep trusting God, if we will uh, resolve ourselves even to the point of death, God will take care of the situation. Because that's what it is about trusting God. God, you called me. I belong to you. You know, I belong to you. You know, if God, if, if I have to come into this world naked and go out of the world naked, so be it. I belong, I belong to God. 
Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant about the hardship that came to us. He says, we were pressed beyond measure, far beyond our ability to endure. He said, brothers, these things came. And then he says this, we felt like we had the sentence of death upon us. He said, these things came so that our dependency would not be upon ourselves, but upon God who raises us from the dead. That's the Apostle Paul talking. God's going to fulfill his plan in your life. But there is going to be a cost for leadership. There always is. Because you cannot preach with authority on something that you have not lived. Esther was in the, in the king's palace. And, 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 it had, and it had come to a place where, man, she hadn't seen the king for 30 days. And there was a royal edict. If you showed up in the king's presence without being called, you were a dead person. And she knew it. She knew it. And she knew, I, look, I can't go into the king's presence. And let me tell you something. When you go to do something for God, there's always going to be son, something that's going to be an obstacle in your way. The devil will make sure it's there and God will allow it because it's a test of your faith and your trust in him. I can't tell you in, in, in building this church, we felt like I remember walking when we got that building. I stood in front of that building right after Katrina and I prayed for it and asked God to give us that building. God told us to plant a church in Uptown. I knew the history in Uptown. We had not had a church to be able to survive in Uptown for a very long time. And I thought to myself, and it just came to me, you know, we, you know if you're going to build a church in Uptown because it's so settled, it's one of those locked-in areas, you know, big area, Catholic area, big Jew area, Jewish area. And um, I knew that if we're going to go in Uptown and establish church, we needed a permanent identity. You know, and so we went to a building right around November or December. Uh, Brian and Melody came down and, and uh, my, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law. And we, they, we went out in front of that church building that we have now in 2005. And, and we taped ourselves praying in front of that building. God, give us this building. You're calling us to raise up a church. God, give us this building that will be a lighthouse, that will be a landmark in this community, that a launching pad for what you're calling us to do. And then we planted the church. We didn't, you know, we were easing in on things and we were making our transition from being the president to, you know, to doing this church. And it was 2006, you know, and I started pursuing these guys. And I remember showing up at a meeting one day. I remember showing up at, at, a, at a meeting and uh, the, the people had just got back into town. And so there's the Methodist board for the state. And it's, it's not made up of ministers. It's actually made up of laypersons. And so I bring to them a proposal for 150000 Pastor Joe, for that whole property. And I remember one of the brothers there said, he said, in the, he said for a church in Uptown? But I knew, like, I mean, he like, for Uptown? Because the building was, was uh, valued at $2 million before Katrina. $2 million. And so, but I'm bringing this $150,000 thing. Now, and you know what? Those people would have gone for it. But we had a lady that didn't even go to the church, and she, and she showed up, and she was mad, and she made it into a racial issue, which was crazy, because I ain't, I ain't white, you know. And but she made it into a racial, we need a, that was a black church, and we need a black church there. I mean, she made, she made a racial issue. And when she went there, that board locked it down. Well, we're going to have to table this. They tabled this. And I often look back to myself and say, man, why, God, when, when we came out, 
of, of doing, when, when we were there and, and Katrina was happening, at that time, I want to tell you something, we were hooked in into about every major ministry in this country. I kid you not, they were coming into my office. And so when we even left SUM, the day I left SUM, my last day, the next day I, ate, I met with about 8 or 12 millionaires who sat me down in the, uh, the House of Pancakes. It's called IHOP. What is it called? IHOP. Yeah, at the IHOP on Manhattan. <clears throat> and they offered me millions, millions to come and join their program. Millions of dollars, whatever you want. group of guys from California. And I remember sitting there and I think to myself, when I'm thinking about planting a church, I'm really praying about that. And the guy burst in, we don't need another church. You know, and he just started going. When I, when I saw his spirit, man, it was the, the Lord let it be revealed. And I knew what I'd be entering into. And I just sat and I leaned across the table just to kind of shut him down. I said, my family and I are going on some vacation time. We haven't had some in about 17 years. And that was the end of the conversation. Everything stopped. Because I knew no money is worth getting into something that ain't right. No money. Okay? And I remember when uh, George and I, one time the first million-dollar gift came to us. We were back in New Orleans. And a guy wanted and George called me on the phone. Hey, man, this guy wants to offer us a million. It was way before Oakland. It was way before the millions had come. We hadn't seen a million-dollar offering. But I remember this guy was offering a million dollars, but there were strings attached. We said no to it. And let me tell you, we could have used a million dollars. But let me tell you something. Everything that comes is not of God. So you better know. So when we, anyway, it was in 2008 when we got that building. And I didn't have a dime. You know, and uh, the Lord gave us $30,000. I mean, just within two weeks to go for the uh, down payment and, uh, you know, just everything. And we didn't, you know, and God has just done so many things. But I often look back and I think to myself, God, why didn't you allow? Why didn't you allow that thing? I mean, it's been hard. It's a hard road that we've been towing. I mean, right when we get that thing, the economy goes, boom. You know, back, back when we would have gotten it, if we would have gotten it then, I'm telling you, everything would have been bought and paid for. I wouldn't know a dime on that building because we saw millions come in. I remember I raised $75,000 just for one outreach, one day. And it was like nothing. Money was pouring in, pouring in. And you think to yourself in the midst of that, why didn't, you know, I remember we raised about almost a quarter of a million dollars. Our first year we had no building. We were just meeting and just for outreach. It was just easy. Money was coming. And all of a sudden, man, the con- we get the building right when the economy goes down. And I'm like, what? Now, Lord, I know you wanted me to get this building. Because, you know, you know we, uh, I mean, we went through this whole process, and it's just too long to talk about here. But, I mean, the fact it is, when we finally got it, we knew it was God. One of the last years I've been praying, I mean, the Lord began to impress upon me now that we're entering into this place of being connected with this church planning movement. And it's like the Lord finally brought it together for me. Why? We didn't get it then. Because, see, Katrina was a unique situation that brought about unique levels of of prosperity and unique things that, that really it would take a Katrina to happen again. And we needed to go through what everyone would go through if they did the same thing. And so you say, God, you mean to tell me that when it was easy 
The Lord didn't do it just so you could go through it when it was hard and it cost you something. Your family die a thousand deaths and you make as little money for sacrifice for what you're doing as when you first started out in New Orleans. Now, I'm going to speak like a fool. You don't have to put this on tape. Is it on tape? Okay. Last year, my wife and my family made so little money. I'm telling you, we don't know how we made it, but we did. And it would shock you. It would shock you. Most of you in this place made more money than my family last year. It would shock you. And you say to yourself, why? I mean, what? I mean, that's so. Because when God calls you to do something, he'll call you to do something. And you sometimes will be put in a place where it's going to cost you. And it will cost you to the point, are you willing to lay it all down? Are you willing to lose the house that God gave you if he gave it to you? Are you willing to sacrifice all? And we have come to that point more times than one where we stare at each other and say, okay, we pray. All right, Lord, this is it. If you don't deliver us, God, this is over. And at the last moment, boom, God does it. Over and over and over. Isn't that right, honey? We've... In the last two years, we have literally lived like that. You say, why? For God's glory. Why? For God's kingdom. And Pastor Joe and his wife, too, they sacrificed. You come in, and man, it was all rolling up in here, and there's probably a couple hundred people up in this place Sunday. But you don't remember or you don't know the sacrifice that has been paid. And see, with that sacrifice, to get to this point, there was a willingness to lay down your life, to lay it all down, for knowing that you are called for such a time as this, and knowing that if you don't do it, God will send someone else to take your place. But believe me, you will not escape. Deliverance is going to come for the Jews because God's going to keep his promise. Deliverance is going to come for his church because Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Deliverance will come for the church of Jesus Christ all the time. All the time in whatever opposition throughout church history. They tried to burn our Bible. They tried to, uh, who was it, Vespasian, that, I mean, took the Bibles and, you know, to burn, to burn the Bibles. All these kings that rose up to try and thwart the plan of God. We're going to take all the Bibles. We're going to take the Christians. We're going to burn them too. People have paid a price for this thing called Christianity, folks. People have gone to their death for this thing called Christianity. God has called people to go to places at the cost of their life. And there had to be a willingness to lay it all down. I remember I was reading the story of one of the sons of the Borden Company. You guys heard of that guy? I think his last name, I think his first name was William Borden. But he was born into wealth. But when God called him into ministry, and he, he was leading a revival of missions at his university there in the Ivy League you know, area. And, uh, but anyway, you know, he, he wrote in his Bible 
Uh, he wrote in this Bible three different things, and I, I don't remember them all. But uh, basically, it was, it was, first of all, it was the denial of the wealth that he had been born into. In other words, he wasn't going to take it. He wasn't going to take it for the call of God because they said, if you do this, we're going to cut you off. And so they cut him off because he followed the call of God. And then and then nobody would stand alongside of him, but that still wouldn't deter him. And then he went over to Egypt to follow the call of God. And people saying, you're crazy. You come from a billionaire family and you've left it all behind. And he goes and he writes in his Bible one of the last things he writes. Because when he goes to Egypt following the call of God, he catches something and he dies. And he's young. And you say to yourself, man, what a waste. No, this man laid it all down. And his blood or his sacrifice became the seed for a movement. And what if God calls you to do that? The raising up of the church is stained with the blood of the martyrs. And he wrote in his Bible this last statement. No regrets. No regrets. And see, Esther, she, went out of, she was at a place that all of us would have loved to have been, man, right up into the palace, right up in there. You see, the devil, you know, in his schemes, you know, and God will allow it, will touch, will, will come against you anywhere you're at. It'll come in any kind of way. Don't think you're going to be estranged from this, Mordecai says. And if you don't, If you don't rise up today, God's going to do it from somewhere else. But I love this statement. And who knows but that you have come to the royal position for such a time as this. We always quote that verse, for such a time as this. But you have to remember that that verse, the context of that verse, verse is a resolve to... If I die, I die. If I die, I die. I resolve to lay it all down for the cost, for the cause of Christ. If I perish, I perish. And it's awesome as you read on. <laughs> Amen is plotting. I love the Lord how he does things. Haman is plotting to, uh, <laughs> to squash out the Jews. But in the night, God gives the king a dream. And he can't sleep. And he wakes up and he calls for all his lawyers and say, Hey, look, look at the books. I can't, I'm troubled by something. Look at all the books. Go over the records. See if there's something I missed. Well, then they came upon the record of Mordecai notifying Esther that these two men had plotted against the king. And he says, have we done anything for him? And they said, no. And so about that time, Haman comes in. And he thinks things are going well. He's right with the king like this. He's buddy-buddy, you know. And the king says, oh, Haman, I'm glad you're here. You know what? What would you do if there was someone you wanted to honor? Someone that you really needed to honor. And the Bible says, Haman thought, oh, surely he's talking about me. (laughs) You know, the devil catches, I mean, God catches the devil in his own schemes. Amen? (laughs) I love it. 
And let me tell you, that'll happen too when God, when, when the enemy is using someone as an assignment. Man, you don't worry. You don't worry. God can handle his business. And so what happens is he comes in there, and you can read the story. <laughs> and so he says, well, I'd put him, I'd take the king's finest robes that he's worn and put it on him and put him in the king's chariot and have someone uh, go before him and say, this is the way the king honors someone. He said, Haman, that's a great idea. Now I want you to be the man leading the horse, carrying Mr. Mordecai. <laughs> In the king's robes and in the chariot. So, you know, and you just read the story. It was so humbling. <laughs> and I've seen God do that. I have seen God do that from the people that are trying to do the worst against you. I remember when we were going for accreditation, and I remember a man had to, I brought, I had to fire a man that was trying to torpedo accreditation. I mean, I don't know if you know about that, but for eight years we worked on accreditation, and the first thing written document to get us to the level of accreditation going to moving towards final i wrote that thing and defended it but the year before we should have gone see but i had someone that tried to undermine what we had been doing let me tell you something every man woman of god you're going to go through a judas you will have a judas in your life more than once jesus went through it you will go through it too you will have someone close that will stab you in the back. I just, okay, I told you that. Has that happened, Pastor Joe, since you've been in ministry? It happens to all men and women of God who try to do anything. The devil's schemes are the same old ones. And I remember, though, that when I had to let this man go, I found out he had torpedoed our accreditation. And it cost us another year. And the next year I spent two weeks in my office over at SUM I slept there every night. I mean, I was there all night. I slept there. Melanie brought me clothes, and, you know, I'd, I'd go home to shower or do whatever, and I typed out that document that was about that thick. You know, some of you guys complained about five pages. This was about two or three inches thick typed stuff, you know, and uh, About an inch of it is the stuff we actually had to type. The other stuff was supporting documents, but it was all typed, so. And I remember when I went there and they said, SUM has reached candidate status. We were sitting in an auditorium with people, and I looked over right to my left, and there was the man and his wife having to hear that SUM had reached candidate accredited status which is the precursor to full accreditation. They give you that status, give you a year to work out the little bit of kinks, but when you get that status, you get Title IV. See, when you get that first status, they give you Title IV right then. So it's the real deal. And I remember sitting in that thing a year later and looking over my left and seeing the man who had tried to undermine and said, he walked out my room and said, you guys will never get it. You have accreditation today because, because of God and what he can do. Because when God says you can do something, you can do something. And you might have to go through some opposition. You might have to lay down. It's going to cost you something. But believe me, God doesn't forget. And that was, I thought to myself, how? I mean, who could have set that up? I didn't know he was going to be there. But he was there, and he had to hear with his own ears. 
S-U-M, candidate status for accreditation. Wow, everybody clapping. <laughs> and I looked right over at him, and he was just like this. Didn't say that. <laughs> and I was just laughing. I told Brother George on the phone, man, we were laughing together. Hallelujah! <laughs> Hallelujah! For such a time as this. I mean, I remember when they said S-U-M couldn't be. I remember when they said it wasn't going to be a general council school and thought it was going to shut the school down. I remember when we had only four students, graduating four students, for about three years in a row. And then Pastor Joe comes on. It was five students, I think. So we had one more we graduated. And I remember that all those times of going forward and throughout ministry, throughout ministry, laying down our life, the, the, the hardness, the time given, the sacrifice, the traveling, the, 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 the living uh, with less than you, than, you, than you need and trusting God to fill in the gaps all the time and seeing God do it time and time and time again. I remember praying one time because we were in such financial need. And I remember the Lord saying to me, reminding me of the word, money out of the fish's mouth. And then I, then I went on a trip and, and I was gone. How many of you heard this story? I, I remember going on this trip and, and, and going to North Louisiana and I had to preach there and I was going to miss Father's Day. And then I traveled to Texas and preached out in Texas. And, and I remember waking up in a Motel 6 that morning before I go out and minister at a church. And when I went... When I went to put, pull the shoe trees out of my shoes, there was a crisp, brand new $50 bill in the middle of my shoe. Laying flat in my shoe, brand new $50 bill. And it was early in the morning, about 7 o'clock, you know, Motel 6. I didn't sleep a lick. And I was about to travel up north. I called my wife and said, hey, you put $50. I thought it was a Father's Day gift, you know. She put 50. And I was wondering, you know, we didn't have $50 at that time. You know, I was wondering, like, you know, where's this $50 coming from? And I called her up, and she says, no, uh, I didn't put the $50 in there. I, I put the shoe trees in your shoe. I packed your shoes. I checked your shoes for socks that you didn't have, and there was nothing in there. And then it dawned on us that this was a miracle for God, and God saying to me, he was going to take care of me. And at that moment, we thought, and my wife says, man, that's for some new shoes, because I needed some new shoes at that time. But I, but I felt like that $50 bill was almost holy or something, you know. So that morning, I go up to preach, and uh, I give it to the pastor. You know, for his pastor and his wife, I gave, listen, brother, I want to bless you with this. And I gave it to him and his wife, you know, and I thought, well, I was just thankful for the miracle. I was thankful for God showing me that he would give, he would provide for me money out of the fish's mouth. Anywhere he, and anyhow he chose to do it, he could do it. If he had to put the money through an angel or however, materialize $50 in my shoe, I'm talking about a crisp, brand new $50 bill. And God knows I'm telling the truth. So I went up there and preached, gave it to Brother Garth Collier. I don't know if I've ever told Brother Garth that I gave him that $50. He still pastors the same church. So he can verify that I gave him $50. And she can verify that she didn't put $50 in my shoe. And she can verify we didn't have $50 bill to give no one. So we give him that $50 bill. And the next morning before I leave to drive to Dallas for services in Dallas... I go to visit Andy Harris, who was a presbyter at the time. And so I'm walking in there, and he had had his teeth 
pulled or something, or a root canal, and his face is all swollen. And, you know, he was in pain. He was trying to visit with me. But he just said, brother, I, you know, he just had to tell me I can't. You know, his face was swollen. And so I'm sitting in there. Brother, I'm going to take off. And, uh, and, and he's getting up. And, he, and as he gets up, he says, wait, brother, w- one moment. And so he goes in, and he calls for his wife. And they're talking in the hallway. And, and then he comes back out. You know, there's a little shuffling around. And then he comes back out. And he says, brother, I wanted to give you something. I, I just felt like the Lord tell me to give you this. And so I said, all right, brother. And I you know, do the Pentecostal handshake. And you know, he puts something in my hand. I get in the car. And it's a check. And it's a check for $50. I couldn't even get rid of that $50 that God was trying to give me. Hallelujah. We're going to finish this up. The Bible, you can read the rest of it. It says, if I die, I die. But who knows that you've been raised up for such a time as this. You have to come to a resolve for ministry. A lot of people that check out. And there are going to be enough things to come your way to cause you to want to quit. But right now, as... As the book of uh, Kings talks about in 1 Kings, when Elijah goes to call, you know, through the, the Word of God, Elisha into ministry. The Bible says Elijah went and he, he took his mantle and he smote it along, uh, you know, smote uh, Elisha with it or, you know, laid it upon him. Elisha was plowing with the yoke of oxen. And uh, there was 12 yoke of oxen. Elisha runs after Elijah and says, let me go back and take care of my family. Let me tell you, there's going to be so many things to come your way to try and thwart you from the plan of God in your life. So many, it'll come from family, friends. God will give you a vision sometimes and, you, and you, maybe, sometimes you'll be the only one that believes it. And you'll share it and people will be looking, even ministers will be looking at you like, well, that sounds great. You know, and you know you're just casting your pearls, you know. And you've got to bring them back in, you know, because, man, who believes me? Well, God believes you. And he's calling you to believe in him because he's calling you. And he's asking you to do something. And it may sound crazy, but believe me, if God's given you a dream, he's going to do it. He will do it. Elijah tells Elisha, what have I done to you? In other words, hey, man, I'm not the ones calling you. Is God. The Bible says Elisha went back and he broke up his plow and he killed the ox. Made some sacrifice, fed some people, and he took off. And breaking up that plow and killing that ox signifies I'm not going back. I'm not going back. That means nothing for me anymore. Only following the call of God. For such a time as this. For such a time as this. Stand with me. Jesus. This morning, I'm just going to say, if you've been struggling with staying, if you've been struggling with stepping, 
I'm saying stepping out for what God is telling you to do. For staying where God has called you right now. Coming to that place of of quitting. And saying, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I don't know. Maybe this is not for me. And then you think back right now to what God asked you to do when you first said yes to this thing. And how God brought you to that place. That it was not a man. That it was not anyone that had talked you in to following the call of God. You know, like you know, like you know, that God said to do this. But right now, you're wrestling. See, I'm wrestling. I'm wrestling right now. If that's you this morning, I want you to lift your hand up. All right, those of you who lift your hands, come on to the front here. Hallelujah. Come on. Wow, there's more than lifted their hands up. Jesus. Jesus. We got some music back there. Jesus. Come on, hon. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Come on, just begin talking to God right now. This is the first step. This is the first thing. You've made a step of faith. You're honest before God. This is the first thing. Pastor Nancy.